Well, we're going to be working our way through the Second Thessalonians. We ended last week our study through First, Second, uh, First Thessalonians, and we find ourselves in Second Thessalonians this week, chapter one. Now, this book is written only a few months after First Thessalonians. Some people believe that it could be written as late as a year after, but most agree it's just just a couple of months later, but but no longer than than one year. It's in this time that this church in Thessalonica begins to go through some very severe difficulty, very severe persecution. I want to just highlight a couple of things. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 1, and verse 4, it says, um, I am in the wrong book. See, we're already starting off bad. All right, first Thess- 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. They're going through persecution. Verse 5, it says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God um, of which you are suffering. You might want to underline that word suffering. And then verse 6, it says, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. They're, they're going through a very difficult time. And then verse 7, and it says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. So uh, they're going through this very, very difficult time. Now, what's taking place there, early on as the church began and people began to become believers, the, the rest of the, the world around them began to notice. So the governor there, the local Roman governor in Thessalonica, issues this this uh, decree, and he says, everybody in our town is now going to have to bow down before the statue of Caesar. Caesar was considered a deity, and so they realized that the Christians were not doing that, so they, they to, to see where everybody was at, they said, you have to bow down before this statue. And the Christians could not, in good conscience, bow down before the statue of Caesar. Now, at the same time, there's the temple to Venus there in Thessalonica, and the priest in, in that temple would consecrate wine on their, their altar, and then they would go into the marketplace, and they would sprinkle the vegetables and the fruits and the meat with the wine that was consecrated to Venus. And this is very common in the pagan temples. So that, and then when they would do that, they would decree that this is now dedicated to God. But their God was Venus and, and whoever. So the Christians, when they saw that, they felt that to take that would be to be participating in the pagan worship. So they, they simply wouldn't do that. When the Christians stopped going to the market and, and stopped buying the things, it became evident to all. So that is where, in response by the local government, persecution begins. Now, Pliny the Elder, who you've never heard of, is a Roman historian. He was a a Roman general. He wrote that it was in Thessalonica that the Christians were first beginning to be crucified for their faith or burned for their faith. So that's where persecution begins, and that's the, the context that Paul is writing to because these believers are going through a very difficult time. So far, so good. And then we're going to find that as persecution began, some of the believers began to wonder, did we miss this event called the rapture? Because it appears that we're in that time period of the tribulation. And so they're, they're concerned about that, to which Paul's going to write, and you're going to say, you're going through tribulation, you're not in the tribulation. He's going to lay all of that out in chapter two, and we'll see that next week. Now, some others we're going to find when we get to chapter three, they believe that the day of the Lord was so close that they quit their jobs. They quit their jobs, and time's going on, and now they're becoming a burden on the people who are still working. So Paul's going to deal with that in chapter 3. 
we're also going to find that Paul is writing this letter because there is a letter that's going around. It's a forgery, but it's apparently in, in Paul's name, saying that this day of the Lord, this time of tribulation has already begun, and uh, the believers here have missed it. So Paul's going to deal with that also in uh, chapter 2, and we'll talk about that next time. Now, this is going to be three very short chapters. There's so much in them. It's one of those times where you have to say, I, I can't talk about everything, so we're going to talk about the main points as we travel through this. Uh, what do you even and what he leave out is always the, the big question. So we got to keep the train moving as, as we go forward. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, and it says, Paul and Silvanus, some of your Bibles will say Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and I want you to underline that word in, in, in God, in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this church is in God and it's in Jesus. And it puts God the Father and Jesus on the same par, at least grammatically. Now this is important, that Paul opens this letter this way, saying that you're the church of God, you're the church that is in God. Uh, many times as you travel through the New Testament, you'll find that certain churches are mentioned, like it'll say, the church that is at Antioch, or the church that is at Ephesus. But here, when Paul writes to this church, he says, I need to tell you guys that you're the church, but you are in God. You're in God, and you're in Jesus, and you need to know that. Now, why do they need to know that? Because they're going through a very difficult time. And Paul realizes that our default response to difficult times is to really begin to question God in our relationship with him. And many times when, when the bottom falls out of our life and we go through difficulty, we think, you know, there, there must be something wrong with me. I, I must be in sin. All right, am I the only person who ever feels this way? You know, I, I face something, difficulty comes in immediately. I go, am I in sin? Am I, is, you know, does God hate me? What's, what's going on? I am the only one, aren't I? At least humor me and say, no. There you go. All right, all right, all right. Uh, you stand up here and do this. And you halfway through, you go, no, I might be the only one. How awkward. So, but when difficulty comes, we, we tend to do that. And, and we think that God might be mad at us. And we tend to feel very insecure. So Paul writes to this church and says, I want you to know you're, you're not just the church at Thessalonica. It's even deeper than that. You're the church that's in God. You, and you're in God and you're in Jesus. And you need to know that because to the suffering church, and write this down, Paul conveys that they are secure in God. You're secure in God. And, and in difficulty, we need to know that. The very fact that they're not running away from the faith as they go through a difficult time is evidence that they are really in. They're, they're in God. And so... Paul begins that letter saying that. Now, this first chapter, Paul is going to give three encouragements to these people who are going through a very difficult time. Now, the first encouragement we're going to look at is uh, the encouragement of what God is doing in their life as they go through difficulty. So um, as, they, as they're going through it, Paul tells them that God is doing something very special in them as they go through a very difficult time. One of the things that you and I need to learn is that when we're going through a very difficult time, it's because God is doing something very special in us. And I've learned that the greatest work that God does in my life is usually in a time of intense difficulty. Am I alone in that one? We've all found that out, haven't we? 
And, and if there's not that intense difficulty, we, we just simply don't go forward in our walk with the Lord. And we see that. So Paul is going to begin by telling them, even though it's a very difficult time, here's what difficulty is accomplishing in your lives. And the first thing that we're going to see in verse 3, I want you to write this down and then, then we'll read it. First thing we're going to see is that their faith is growing. Their faith is growing. Paul says, you know, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because your faith, underline that, is greatly enlarged. However your Bible says it, your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each, each one of you toward one another grows even greater. So their, their faith is growing. It, God has a way of taking you and I through some very difficult times, and it's in that difficult time where he begins to grow our faith. Last week, we all saw the video of Carol, who shared her testimony with our congregation, how she's walking through a very intense time as she's battling cancer. And, and you recall that she shared in that video that, that there's this peace in the midst of this very difficult time, and the doctors have said we, we really don't have great news. You know, we, we really don't know how this is going to play out. And Carol said, but I have this peace that's inside of me. God is walking her through that very difficult time, and and God is showing up with this peace. He's growing her faith, and her faith is being evidenced by a trust that that maybe she didn't have when when everything was was going along. So um, you've heard me say that, that, um, that God has a way of bringing each and every one of us to that place where, as it's been said, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. And there's going to come a time in your life, if you're going to walk with the Lord, he's going to bring you to the place where Jesus is all you got. It's all you got. And that's what he uses to grow us. Write this down, because real faith is tested faith. Real faith is tested faith. I'm teaching this. I'm not telling you I like it. I'm just telling you I'm teaching it, okay? I don't look forward to this. But, but when, you, when you read the Bible, like you come to Hebrews chapter 11, and many of you have been around the church for some, some time, you know that that's the great hall of faith. But when you read the stories, here's what you find out. All of those stories are about people. They're great people of faith. But what were they great people of faith in? They all suffered greatly for their faith. They're great people of faith because they had to walk through some very difficult times and they had to walk through it with the Lord. James would write about it like this, and here's what he says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses difficulty in our lives to mature us. And, and we can all tell a story. You all know my story. I was 20, 28 years old, almost 29. And uh, my dad was supporting me. It was a great life. He, uh, I was living on his credit card. I highly recommend it. It was a wonderful time. And, and then one day, my dad gets arrested, you know, and, and he goes to prison. He's away for almost nine years. And when he went away to prison, I got a call that he's in prison and I have to come pick up my sister who was seven years old because I'm the next of kin. And I'll never forget that day because everything that we had instantly evaporated. Where our house was taken, the cars taken, everything was taken. And I went to pick up my sister and I was you know, obviously driving the car that dad was providing at that time. And uh, I'll never forget her looking at me saying, where are we going? And I had to say, 
I don't know. And then she said, I'm hungry. Can we get something to eat? And I remember saying, I don't know how I said it, but in essence, I said, I don't know. I had no idea. And God walked me through a five-year period where nothing worked out in my life. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I can tell you stories. You'd cry. I'd cry. We'd have a good time. But, but the... <laughs> The thing is, it was in that time that God did his greatest work in my life. And when I look back at that time, I can tell you, I don't want to go back. But I look back and I go, it was in that time that you really changed me. I was different after that. And there's been a few times since then where God has stepped in and brought a great deal of difficulty and pain. But it's in that time as I've walked with him where he's done his work in me. It's the same thing for each and every one of us. It's the same thing for this church. Now, the next thing that we notice, I just want you to write this down. Paul is articulating this, that difficulty doesn't just make us, it reveals us. The truth of our faith is revealed when we're walking through it. What we really believe comes out. Jesus was teaching, you've all heard the parable of the sower, and Jesus says about this one, he says, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution, affliction's just difficulty, persecution is people are mad at you because you, don't love, because you love Jesus and they don't. When that affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Persecution and difficulty has a way of revealing what's really going on in our lives spiritually. And it's in that time that we find out who's really in and who's not. And Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, yeah, you're going through it, but it's revealing you're really in because you haven't bailed on this. So their faith was growing in this very difficult time, but then also Paul's going to say that their love was increasing. God was using it to increase their love. Verse three, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Going through difficulty with somebody either bonds you together or it tears you apart. And for those of you who are married, you know that you're going to face some difficulty in your life. And that's either going to bond you in a marriage or it's going to rip you apart. You know that as, as a church, as you go forward, there's going to be times of difficulty. It either bonds you or it rips you apart. Cheryl and I will be celebrating 16 years of marriage coming up here in a, in a couple of months. And, um, you know, what's interesting about that is that I remember when we first got married, people used to say, I've been married 16 years. I'd be like, 16 years? That's like, like an eternity. You know, this is forever. And uh, now after, after 16 years, here's what I can tell you, that I, I love her more and deeper now than I did on the day that I married her. I mean, I, I loved her when I married her, but there was, you know, never mind. But... <laughs> There was a lot of passion attached to that, you know, and still is, you know, obviously. But, but the point is that over the last 16 years, that love has deepened and um, it's become more mature. But the reason being is Cheryl and I, as we've walked forward, we've had to walk through the stuff of life. And as we've walked through the stuff of life, it's bonded us together. If you allow the Lord to walk with you, and you walk through it with him, it bonds you together. If you don't, it tears you apart. And so the, the difficulty either bonds you together or it tears you apart. So their faith is growing, 
Their, their love is increasing. They're going through this difficult time. And, and they're, they're, they're being bonded stronger as, as a church body, even though it's very, very difficult. And then, number three, we're going to find that their perseverance is developing. Perseverance is developing. Verse four, it's going to say it a little bit different in each, each Bible. But it says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance in my Bible. Some of your Bibles might say endurance, and some of your Bibles might say patience, however it says it in your Bible, underline it, and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You're you're going through it. The King James Version says it like this, and I put it on your outline. It says, in all your persecutions and tribulations. Now, some of your Bibles will say afflictions. I like the word tribulations here. It's not talking about the great tribulation, but just the tribulations that that we face. And the reason for that, this word tribulations, the the original word in in the original, the word in the original language is most often translated as tribulations. The word there in the original language, I put it on your, on your outline. We've talked about it several times as we've traveled through this, this book in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians is the word thalipsis. And uh, it was the word that was used if, if you were in a winemaking situation and you were going to smash the grapes. So the smashing of the grapes was referred to as that thalipsis, just the smashing. And so Paul says you're facing these situations and he describes them as, as something that's smashing you like a grape. And, and even though it's, it's smashing you, what it's really doing is it's causing you to, to build some endurance. Your faith is deepening. It's causing you to love people. And, and it's causing you to learn how to just endure, just how to endure. By the way, um, there on your outline in Romans chapter 5, we studied this last year, but the literal translation of this verse in Romans 5.3 just says, tribulation doth work endurance. The, the idea is that God uses persecution and he uses um, just tribulation, difficulty. The bottom has fallen out of your life. He uses that to build an endurance in your faith as you go forward, but you have to walk with him as you go through it. Now, these believers are facing two situations. First of all, they're facing persecution. Persecution is from the outside because they're following Jesus and the people around them don't like it. And it's in that some have been crucified, some have been burned. It's a very, very difficult time. They're facing that. Then they're facing affliction that comes with it. Their affliction is just the stuff of life, but probably in their situation is attached to the fact that now people won't do business with them because they're Christians. They've had their houses confiscated because they're Christians, and they're walking through it. And God says, and I'm using that. I'm using that to to build some perseverance inside of you. Um, And and I I would tell you that on, on this end, we never get excited about that. We never get excited about that. But God uses that and those things to grow us. If you're going to grow in your faith, you're going to have to walk with God through some very difficult times. Here's what I can promise you, and you want to write this down, that God never wastes the hurt. He never wastes the hurt. If we walk with him in the difficult times, he uses it to bring us to that place of maturity. But then also, number four, you want to write this down, their testimony was helping others. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, 
we, are, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now, I, um, I put this here from the New Living Translation, and it just says, we proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. The, their faithfulness, what they really believe, is revealed as they go through it. And their, their faithfulness here is being revealed. And it's being revealed in a very difficult time. The, the sailor is never tested in, um, in the calm seas. The sailor is always tested when things get difficult. Can I share something very, very personal? doesn't go to this room. But um, I grew up in the church. And by the time I had finished junior high, my family had been in and out of five churches. We, we would go to a church, and uh, I'll never forget, I got saved at Northwest Baptist Church, and uh, I still have very vivid memories of my family in the front seat, parents, uh, my, my stepdad, my mom, having these very bitter arguments. And then we would pull into the church parking lot, and in Baptist churches, they have greeters out in the parking lots. It's a wonderful thing, and they're doing this. And, and I would hear the most vitriolic uh, venomous things coming out. But as soon as we pulled into the church parking lot, everything would change and my parents would be like... <laughs> and, and I thought that was very odd. And we would go to a church up until somebody offended, somebody said something, somebody didn't do it the way that we think it should be done. And we never learned to, to just endure and, and walk in faithfulness in the context of a church. Now, growing up, I had a very difficult time making a commitment to any, any church ever. When you get together with my family, not just my, my parents, but with my cousins and all the aunts and the uncles and all that, everybody believes in Jesus and loves God and yada, yada, yada. But the question that we always ask is, what church are you going to now? Because here's what we know. It's probably not the church that you were going to the last time. And what happens with that is my cousins have all grown up. We grew up in a place where we changed churches all the time because we wouldn't walk through any difficulty. As soon as somebody said something, we were gone. Now, the generation that's coming up behind us doesn't have any connection with church, even though they've grown up. Because what we've taught our generations is to have less and less and less commitment to anything. And as soon as something makes us uncomfortable, we're gone. That make sense? Now, with that, God is using some very difficult times in the context of this church to strengthen God's people as they go forward. But they have to walk through it. And Paul says, you're doing a great job. So, so just inter- interesting, interesting stuff. So Paul says, um, you know, and we're telling other people about your endurance, and it's helping other people, but it's helping other people because you're walking through it and you're honoring the Lord as you walk through it. So up to this point, Paul has talked about, you know, when you talk about Paul, Paul has this theme of faith, hope, and love. 
And up to this point, Paul has talked about faith and he's talked about love, but he hasn't talked about hope. It's at this point where Paul begins to talk about our hope as believers, especially as we're walking through those very difficult times. He's going to give the encouragement of hope. And Paul says, here's what you believers you can hope for as you're walking through this difficult time. Now, here's where the plot thickens. Um, Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay. Verse 5, he says, this is a plain indication, you're going through all this stuff, of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For, you know, you're, you're suffering for God's kingdom. So Paul says, first thing you need to know, here's an encouragement, here's your hope. You have the hope of reward. Write that down. Hope of reward. They are suffering for God's kingdom in this time. Now, we're not talking about being worthy of salvation, but being worthy of the kingdom. There's a very big difference between going to heaven and inheriting God's kingdom. There will be people who will be in heaven, they're saved because they put their trust in Jesus, but they haven't really inherited the kingdom. They don't have all the reward that goes with it. There's a very interesting verse I want to show you there on the outline in 2 Timothy. Paul says, as he describes this, he says, you know, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. He doesn't say if we suffer with him, we will be saved and go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But if we suffer, we could add, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. This is a very big if. If we will go through it with him, then we will reign with him. There's reward for that. Again, this is, this is very different. It's a big difference between going to heaven and inheriting all that heaven has for us, the, the kingdom, this, this reigning with him. There are people who are all in with Jesus until it becomes inconvenient, difficult, or it personally costs them something. There's, as long as it's convenient, we're in. Doesn't mean they're not saved. But there's that, they've never come to the place where they go, I'm going to, if I have to go through it, cost me whatever, I'm in. And, and so Paul says here, you have a reward because in verse five, he says, you're suffering for his kingdom. And there's a great reward for that. So for, for those who are going through it for his kingdom, there's reward. So far, so good. Then he says, and this is my favorite, and this is where the plot really thickens and the part that we become uncomfortable we call this the hope of recompense. Uh, it began with an R and I couldn't think of another word. So the hope of recompense. Let me read verses six through nine. We're going to underline some things. For after all, he says in verse six, it is only just for God to repay, underline that, with affliction, underline affliction, those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Underline that. So this might not happen right now, but it will happen in the future. Verse 8. Dealing out, and in my Bible it says retribution. However your Bible says it, you underline that. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These, underline, will pay the penalty, underline that, 
of eternal destruction, underline that, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You and I, and, and mostly in our, in our country and in our culture, we're very comfortable with the Jesus who kisses the babies and says things like love your neighbor and you know, do nice things to people. But we're, we're uncomfortable with the Jesus who then turns around and says, I, I want you to know that there's coming a day when I'm coming back and I'm going to be pouring out retribution on, on those who, who reject it. And um, it's interesting also that when you go through the Bible, we don't have a lot of descriptions of what hell is like. But the person who talked about hell the most is Jesus and the Gospels. And it was always with this sense of it's real and you don't want to find yourself there. And it's also interesting that God says in verse 6, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction, as it says in my Bible, to those who afflict you. So they've afflicted you. So God says there's coming a day when I'm going to repay them with affliction, which is very interesting because in the Bible, God always has this very poetic way of dishing it out. For instance, we've all heard the story or seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, Moses and the Ten Commandments. Familiar with the story? So it's this great story. And in Exodus chapter one, it begins with Pharaoh issuing this edict. And he says to all the midwives there in, in, uh, in the land of Goshen, and he says, he says, um, you know, too many Jewish people, so we want you to take all the Jewish boys, all the males, and drown them in the Nile. That's what I want you to do. Well, that doesn't happen. But what's very interesting, by the time you get a few chapters into it, what happens to Pharaoh and his all-boy army? How do they die? Remember they're crossing the sea? So, Pharaoh says, you drown them. God says, no, but here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to drown. And so it's what happens to them. God just brings it back. You have the story in the Old Testament of Naaman who builds the gallows. And uh, the story of how he wants to have the Jewish people killed. But ultimately, the Jewish people aren't killed. But Naaman is put to death with his whole family. They're on the gallows that he built. Interesting story in in the book of Daniel, where King Darius is, by his advisors, uh, called to arrest Daniel and throw him into the lion's den, which they think that Daniel's going to be killed. But God has a way of dishing out what has been dished out, and so ultimately is Daniel in the lion's den eaten by the lions? That's what you say now. But who is? All the advisors who wanted to dish it out on Daniel find themselves with all their people thrown into the lion's den. And and so they've dished it out and God repays them the way that they've treated God's people. God says there's coming a day when I'm going to dish it out to them in the way that they've dished it out to you. This is something that makes us feel at times a little uncomfortable. Some people are just you know, uncomfortable with the concept of Jesus coming back with his angels in flaming fire and dealing out retribution. So what do we do with this? Well, again, you and I are created in the image of God. There is much that we can learn about God 
by looking at ourselves, being created in the image of God, there are certain things that we have inside of us that, that are unique to us as humans that are not really found all that much in, in the animal kingdom because we uniquely are created in the image of God. And dads, you know, for those of you who are dads, you know that, that if um, you go through a difficult time, you can get over a lot of stuff. You can go through a difficult time, you can get over a lot of stuff. But somebody hurts your kid, it wakes something up inside of you, doesn't it? So, somebody violates your child in some way, you find out about it, and there's something deep inside of you that says, you know, to that person, it would be better for you to get to prison before I get to you. Because at least in prison, you have a chance. Oh, come on, you feel that way. We do. Well, where do we get that from? You and I get that because we are created in the image of God. Years ago, um, I was watching this show, and the show was teaching kids and parents how to protect themselves from unwanted advances and from becoming victims of pedophiles and, and things of that nature. And they, they said, if, if your children would learn to say one phrase very strongly, it will get them out of some very difficult situations. I want you to write this phrase down. And the phrase is simply this. I will tell my dad. Write that down. I will tell my dad. So there's your 16-year-old daughter, and she finds herself in a car out on a date. Why you let your 16-daughter date, I don't know, but, but you do. And she, just kidding. I'm moving to Wyoming or something when my kids turn 16, so no, no, I'm not. But there she is, and she's in this very compromising situation, and she's saying no. But he's not taking no for an answer. If she would look at him and say, I will tell my dad, end. Most situations where a child is molested, it's by somebody who is known to the family. Typically in those situations, something is uttered like, don't say anything. If that child would look at that person who's about to be a perpetrator in this and simply say to that person, I will tell my dad. All of a sudden, there's fear. There's terror. Don't you agree? Because nobody wants to bring dad into the picture, do we? And if our children learn to say, I will tell my dad. Spiritually speaking, somebody told our dad, and he's found out, and he's coming. And the people who have been harming his people here in Thessalonica and throughout, who do not repent, they will not meet loving Jesus, but they will meet wrathful father who has harmed his children. We get that because we are created in the image of God. Very interesting verse. There in your outline, it says, Jesus is speaking. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he'd be drowned in the depth of the sea. What's he saying? Daddy's coming. Daddy's coming. Because he's passionate about his children, just like we are about ours. We are because we are created in his image. 
Which is why, if we can put that verse back up there, when he had given thanks, Eucharisto, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was called Eucharisto because it involved giving thanks. Giving thanks for what? Giving thanks for the fact that he somehow, some way, came to you and I and revealed our need for him, which put us in this group over here and not that group over there that's going to be having retribution dealt out upon them. Part of communion is our saying, thank you, God, that you came to the earth and you paid my price. Thank you, God, that you somehow called me and you made it so that I could receive you. And thank you, God, that I have received you so I don't experience you in that retribution but I experience you in that reward. That makes sense? It's because we're created in the image of God that we can understand that. Now, very quickly, um, and we're going to go very quickly, this passage that we've looked at here in uh, verse 6 all the way through, if we read verse 10, it says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, specific day, to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. This event where he shows up with his flaming angels and flaming fire, however your translation says it, and uh, retribution is dealt out, is very different than what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we, rec- we, we regard as, and we call, the rapture of the church. This is an event that takes place that we typically refer to as the second coming of Christ. And there's some very, very glaring uh, differences. First of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he returns in the air. We meet him in the air. Here he returns to the earth, and he's coming with his angels in this flaming fire. Uh, In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he comes for the church, and in this passage he's coming back with the church you have in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, believers are escaping what is to come, but here on the earth, as he comes back at the second coming, they're experiencing the wrath that would be poured out. This, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, occurs at an undisclosed time, but this event that we're reading about takes place at the end of that seven-year tribulation. It's two very different events. We'll talk about that next week. Moving on. Now Paul says, as we wrap this up, he says, there's another encouragement. And he says, it's just the encouragement of prayer. Paul says, I'm praying for you, and this is what I'm praying for. First of all, verse 11. To this end, we also pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy, underline worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power couple of things. First of all, when he talks about worthiness, he's not talking about us being worthy to go to heaven. Um, The New Living Translation, I think, says it best. It says, we're asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. Paul says, I'm praying for you that God would give you what you need to, to live out this call that God has for you. The second thing Paul is praying for is their walk. Write that down. 
And there in your outline from the NIV, some of your translations will say this, that he might fulfill every good purpose of yours. Right now, for these people, God's purpose involves them walking through a very difficult time. Paul says, I'm praying that God will give you what you need to fulfill his purpose in you. And then number three, he's praying for their witness. Verse 12. So the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. So everybody's going to know about Jesus because of you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus would be glorified in you. As people see you walking through it, they're going to see something different about you. And here's why. Write this down. People make conclusions about Jesus based upon what they see in me. People make conclusions about Jesus based upon what they see in me. We, and he says that he might be glorified in you. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross, as we wrap up with this, Jesus is on the cross and he's there and, and those around him have seen him. They've, they've seen him take the beating. They, they've seen him be nailed to the cross. They've seen that he was thirsty. They've, they've seen how he spoke. They, they saw how he spoke about his mom and he says to John, this is your mom. Take, take her home. Take care of my mom. And you, you recall how Jesus spoke and all that he did and how he conducted himself in the most excruciating situation. It's interesting to me that there were a group of people who were looking on. They saw what was taking place on the cross. They saw the things happening around him and they drew a conclusion. Notice there in your outline. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. They saw the things happening around him and they saw how he went through this incredibly difficult time and it changed them. God calls you and I to walk through some very difficult times representing him because the world is watching the world is watching. And how we represent him is going to change somebody's eternity. And with that, we wrap up and we close. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And, and Lord, even though right now we're not facing these things, we're facing the hard things that we're going through, but we're not facing these things. But in the things that we're facing right now, as we've traveled through, here's what I pray, that you're growing our faith. And as we travel through difficult times, you're growing our love. You're building endurance inside of us. And you're storing up reward for us as we follow you through these very difficult times. And I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us who names you as their Lord and Savior and this church as their church home, that no matter what we go through, you would give us what we need to represent you in the good times and in the bad times so that the world that's watching can look on and say there's something different about them. I want what they have. Go with us until we meet again. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.